Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. This semester's lecture series, entitled Power to the People, Identity, Difference and Inequality, has been coordinated by Dr Kate Kirkpatrick. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. So, good afternoon everybody. Welcome to 2020. Happy New Year. It's great to see you beginning this new AKC series on London, the life story of a city in nine buildings. Um, Many of you will recognise me because I'm the director of the AKC and I usually am introducing lectures every week, but I wasn't here last term, I was on research leave. So for those of you who haven't, uh, haven't met me, haven't seen me, I'm Claire Carlisle and I'm the AKC director and also I'm a reader in philosophy and theology uh, here at King's. So um, I'm really delighted to be giving the first lecture in this series, which is coordinated by uh, my colleague uh, Vittorio Montemaggi, who's just sitting over there. And Vittorio will be giving one of the lectures in week five of this series, but he um, has put together this really exciting and, I think, fascinating series looking at London um, through the lens of buildings and thinking about how, how buildings embody the life of a city. So I'm going to say a few words about the vision for the series as a whole before beginning with this, the first building of the series, which is the building we're currently in, King's College London, and talking about King's and what it represents and thinking about its history and thinking about what it is now and what it means for us all to, to be part of, of, of King's and part of this building. So... The vision for this series is really to think about the life of this city, London, because this is something that all of us have in common. Um, We're all here in King's doing very different things, but one thing that we all share is London as a place in which we either work or study. Many of us also live in London. And I'm sure we have very different experiences of the city. Um, For some of us, it might be quite a familiar place, For others, it it might be very far from home and and a place that's sort of relatively unknown and and still to be discovered. A big city like London can be intimidating, but it can also be exhilarating and really exciting. So London is something that we all, uh, I think, can share. We're we're all in it already, and it's going to be part of our lives at least for uh, the next three years or so, and perhaps a place that we'll be returning to um, again and again, even, even if you're just sort of passing through Kings, it will be perhaps home in, in some way for, for a long time. And we want to think about London and uh, specific buildings in London, not just as sort of physical buildings, not just looking at them from the outside, but in a sense, excavating them as places that hold meaning um, and places that give shape to human ideals, human aspirations, human activities, and and so on. 
I remember when I first joined King's, which was about nine years ago, I had to walk over Waterloo Bridge to go to the HR department. And um, later that day, I said to a friend of mine, oh, it was, you know, it was amazing. It, was, it felt like being right in the centre of London. And he said, well, you are right in the centre of London. You know, looking, at, looking over uh, to the west and seeing the Houses of Parliament, uh, looking over to the east and seeing St Paul's Cathedral, there was this really exhilarating sense of being right at the heart of the city. And as you can see on this map, um, it just so happens that King's is in the centre of uh, the range of buildings that have been chosen to explore in this series. So next week, we're going to be travelling east to the East London Mosque. And that's a building um, that, when we, when we think about it, tells a story of faith and community and diversity and actually quite a lot of change in, in that uh, part of London. In the third week, we're going to be heading west to Trafalgar Square in the National Gallery, which is a story of, of art and painting in particular, and national belonging and a sense of a shared culture and a shared heritage. Then in the fourth week, we're going east again, actually off the map, to South Quay Plaza, which is over here um, in the middle of the Isle of Dogs, right in the east of London. This is a very modern building, um, a story of terrorism and regeneration. In week five, you'll meet uh, Vittorio, who's coordinated the series, and he and another colleague, Michelle Fletcher, are going to be lecturing on the Barbican, which, as you can see, is to the northeast of King's in Clerkenwell, a story of modernism and performance art. Then heading north to the Warburg Library to um, hear a story of the persecution of Jews in uh, Nazi Germany and also of cosmological visions and artistic explorations. And then we're nipping very close to home, just down the Strand uh, or down Fleet Street, to Twining's Tea Shop. Quite maybe a, a surprising choice, but that turns out to be a story of trade, of Buddhist philosophy and colonialism. And then we're going up west again to Soho Square, number 32 Soho Square, which was a place where scientific experiments began. So that's a story of, of science and, and, and of discovery. And then we're ending this sort of virtual tour in Westminster Abbey, reaching back to London's medieval past and there hearing a story of music and worship. Um, we could have chosen so many different buildings in London, but, but these give some sense of the diversity of the culture in London. Um, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about these, these different buildings and exploring them with the various lecturers who are going to be contributing over the next few weeks. So before I talk about kings in the centre of, of this map, I just want to pose this question, what is a building? It may, maybe it sounds like a stupid question, um, but actually it's not a question I'd asked myself before preparing this lecture. And it was a really interesting question to reflect on. And it made me realise that a building is something that represents and embodies what is important to us collectively. Obviously, we can think about the buildings that we live in, our homes. It's very important to us to have warmth and shelter and a place to rest and a place to be with our family. But apart from that, we don't just build homes. We build all these other kinds of buildings that represent values, what's important to us, what do we want to 
honour and make space for in our lives, what do we want to come together to do and to think about? And that's really what a building represents. So in a sense, a building is a symbol. That's to say it's a visible representation of, of something that's valuable. So I've just... Um, so I just went to India over Christmas, and um, this is a building I visited, so this is why I chose this example. Obviously, we have this uh, religious symbol here, the, the Om symbol. So a building is partly a symbol. It's a visible representation of value and of meaning. Um, but it's, it's, it's not portable in the same way that a symbol is. It's located in a place in a very concrete way. So in that sense, it's a little bit like a monument, like a statue, so in the foreground here is a monument, uh, a, a sacred cow, which is an important symbol in India. And any kind of statue or monument is something that is, is fixed in a certain place and you, you can go to it and you, you, can, you can look at it and you can touch it. And it's also something that's very durable. Um, a monument is something that is relatively permanent. So a building is a bit like a symbol, it's a bit like a monument, but it's also obviously different from those things because it's something that we can actually go inside <laughs> and dwell, dwell within. So what's really significant about a building is the way in which it creates space. It creates space for, for something, for something that wouldn't happen without that building being there. So this temple in South India is a temple for Shiva. Um, and it's, an, it's enormous. It's at the foot of this great mountain, which has a sort of sacred significance um, in that region. Um, and this temple was built at the foot of this mountain. And you go inside it, and it's in sort of concentric square uh, rings, and you walk through it. Um, and then you get right to the heart of it, and you go inside, and, and you walk past kind of opening. And inside that opening is Shiva one of the most significant gods of Hinduism. So right at the centre of this enormous building is Shiva, and the whole place is devoted to a sense that this is where the god lives, and this is a place you go to to, to see this god, um, to be in the presence of the god, to give, make a sacrifice, pay respects, and give honour to this, this, this thing that this community not only believes, but just sort of knows to be important to them. So buildings create space, but they also have a temporal quality to them. Um, you know, buildings tend to last quite a long time. It's quite difficult to build a building. It takes a lot of time and money to build it. And it's also quite difficult to destroy, but to knock one down once you've built it. You know, they're very durable things. So when someone makes a building, they're not just representing what we happen to think is important to us today. They're also projecting onto the future and giving to future generations this place um, that, that represents values, embodies what's important, and really makes a declaration about the longevity and, and, and yeah, even perhaps the, the permanence of these, of these values. So that's something to bear in mind as we think about the different buildings we're going to encounter this term. Of course, buildings have this very permanent character to them, but they also change a lot over time. Sometimes the function of a building changes completely. A church might be converted into a nightclub or a cinema might become a block of flats. You know, buildings can completely change, but even when the function doesn't change, there can be changes in 
the values and the ideals and the aspirations that that building embodies. Um, and I think that's something to think about in the case of King's. King's has been here for almost 200 years now, and it was built as a university, and it's still a university, but there is definitely ways in which the idea of what a university is, the values that King's aspires to, have really changed a huge amount over time, and perhaps there are other ways in which there are, there are core values that, that haven't changed and that are still um, upheld by kings and, and, and fostered by kings in this very sort of practical way today. So let's um, go back to the beginning of kings and first of all just to think about where we are on the strand. So kings was founded um, in 1829 and, and various different sites were chosen for this university but it was eventually this site next to Somerset House that was chosen. And it was quite a diverse neighbourhood. So this map is actually from the later 19th century. Um, the dark blue that you can see are slums, are, are these really um, kind of squalid uh, places with, all, with, with a lot of poverty um, that Charles Dickens described in 1836, so just around the time that King's was um, being established. He talked about the filthy and miserable appearance of this part of London. Wretched houses with broken windows, patched with rags and paper. Every room let out to a different family, and in many instances to two or even three. Filth everywhere. A gutter before the houses and a drain behind clothes drying and slops emptying from the windows. Girls of 14 or 15 with matted hair walking about barefoot. Men and women in every variety of scanty and dirty apparel. Lounging, scolding, drinking, smoking, squabbling, fighting and swearing. So that's, the, that's those dark blue areas that are just in, in Covent Garden to the north of Kings. Um, but it was also a site that had some scholarly associations already. So in Somerset House were the Royal Society, which was an institution for scientific learning, the Royal Academy of Arts. Down the road was Charing Cross Hospital and the Royal College of Surgeons, the Hunterian School of Medicine, the Society of Apothecaries, um, and two hospitals, Guy's and St. Thomas's, which are now part of King's today. So that medical heritage is something that has been a part of King's right from the foundation. It's always been... Um, located in a place that's surrounded by, by the practice of medicine. And, and, and now, of course, King's um, is in partnership with the NHS and, and, and runs um, these hospitals at, at Guy's and Thomas's. So this is where we were. The neighbourhood has obviously changed in some ways, but it's still, Covent Garden has certainly changed. Um, but it, I think this description of London as a juxtaposition of very different kinds of communities and very different kinds of standards of living is something that we can, we can recognise today, um, perhaps stretched over a larger area of um, the city of London. So this is the site that was chosen for King's. But of course, the big question is, is why build a new university? Whose idea was this? What was the thinking behind it? How did King's come into being in 1829? Well, the broader context here is the emergence and the growth of the modern university during the 19th century. So before um, King's and uh, UCL, which were founded at the, in the same decade, before King's and UCL were built, the only universities that existed in England were Oxford and Cambridge. And there were similar um, kinds of universities in Europe as well, dating back to 14th century. But in the 19th century, there was a huge explosion of new universities being built in Germany, 
um, many universities were built right at the beginning of uh, the 19th century. So Germany was sort of ahead of us in, in, in that respect. And then in, into, the, into the third decade of the 19th century, which is when King's and UCL were built, these were the first two modern universities to be built in England. So why did this happen in the 19th century? Um, it's interesting to contrast this vision, the vision of a modern university with the older model that you can see if you go to Oxford or Cambridge. In a sense, Oxford and Cambridge colleges are a bit like monasteries. So before there were universities, there were monasteries, and that was where um, sort of academic study, in particular the study of philosophy and, and theology, happened within universities. It was monks who did that kind of scholarly work. And then um, the universities of Oxford and Cambridge emerged on that monastic model. So if you go into a, a, an Oxford or Cambridge college, it sort of feels a bit like a monastery. There'll be a, there'll be a chapel there. There'll be a dining room there for communal eating. And there are, um, there are rooms there that people live in. So it's really a kind of enclosed community of scholars built on that monastic model. Um, and in a sense, it's an institution that's really based on sort of communal living, um, sharing this, this, this space together with the chapel, the sort of religious space right at the heart of it. Um, and the kinds of subjects that were studied in Oxford and Cambridge were very limited. You would basically study law, uh, medicine or theology. So those colleges were places where you would go to learn one of those three subjects um, to, and then enter a profession. You would become a doctor or a lawyer, or um, you'd be ordained and become a priest. And that was the, the, the medieval or sort of early modern model of the university that persisted right through to the 19th century. When we saw these new universities being built throughout Europe, and new academic disciplines, so disciplines like English literature, modern languages, engineering, chemistry, none of these disciplines existed before the 19th century. They sort of came into being at this time. Um, it was a century of a great sort of proliferation and development of what's now recognisable as academic life, academic research, study and teaching. And another distinctive feature of the 19th century was an ideal of progress. This sense that collectively we can improve and reform the societies that we live in, um, and that education was really at the heart of that ideal of progress, that, that through new learning, new discoveries, perhaps particularly scientific discoveries or theories of economic growth or theories of social cohesion and social organisation, all these new disciplines were seen to be ways of collectively understanding our world better um, and then educating people so that we could have a more cultivated, more civilised, fairer, more just... Um, society, um, a more, more educated society. So this, there, was, there was a huge confidence and optimism in education at this time. Um, and, and all these new universities which were, which were built you know, in London in the 1820s, but then soon after that in, in Bristol, in Manchester, in Liverpool, in Cardiff. You know, during this Victorian era, all these new universities were built in cities. So one really important thing to understand about the foundation of King's um, is its connection with, with UCL, University College London, because University College London was the first university to be proposed in London um, as a secular university. 
and King's was then founded, um, to be honest, as a, as a kind of reaction against UCL. So if, if we didn't have UCL, it's hard to imagine King's ever coming into being. So if we want to understand why King's was established, we need to think about UCL and why UCL was, um, was built. UCL, um, when you go on their website now, you can see this uh, slogan, Disruptive Thinking Since 1826. And it's really interesting to look at these university websites and see how institutions brand themselves, how they project their, their image. And this idea of disruptive thinking is something um, that UCL is perhaps uh, very, very justly uh, proud of. The vision for UCL was as a university for London that would be an inclusive alternative to Oxford and Cambridge colleges. And um, part of this inclusivity was extending education from the upper classes to the middle classes. And this, is, this again is part of this ideal of progress in the 19th century, that university education and education more generally will be extended to more people rather than just being confined to extremely rich aristocratic families. UCL didn't aim to educate lower class people, aim to educate the youth of our middling rich people. So there's a very clear uh, sort of demographic being identified here, the middle classes, um, and to extend education to this, this new group of people. The main aim of UCL was um, tied up with the religious character of, of Oxford and Cambridge. So you could only enter either of those two universities, Oxford and Cambridge, if you were a member of the Church of England. Um, only Anglicans could study at Oxford and Cambridge. So you had to be um, a man, you had to be the son of a, a wealthy family. Um, you, most of the time there were some exceptions, but usually um, these, were, these were wealthy sons of aristocratic families and you had to be part of the Church of England. So very much an establishment um, place And as I mentioned before, a chapel, and always an Anglican chapel, is at the heart of these um, Cambridge and Oxford colleges. So the vision behind UCL was to have a university that was open to all people, regardless of their religious affiliation. So the people who founded it were from various different groups. Some of them were Jewish, some of them were Catholics, Methodists, other kinds of Christian dissenters, and also atheists, um, although they were probably in a minority. I mean, there weren't, there weren't many atheists in, in, in the 19th century. But all these people, Jews, Catholics, dissenters, were all excluded from Oxford and Cambridge. And so the vision for UCL was that it would be this inclusive place that everybody, um, regardless of, of religious affiliation, would come, would come to. And this is what is meant by secular. So secular doesn't mean that it's only open to people who aren't religious. On the contrary, people you know, from all sorts of religious backgrounds came to UCL. <laughs> secular means that religious faith and a specific religious faith is not part of the foundation of that institution. UCL doesn't have a chapel. It doesn't have a theology department, and its sort of manifesto, if you like, its ethos, was to exclude religion from the life of the institution. So the secular view sees religious belief, religious affiliation, as something private and personal, something that you sort of do at home, um, you know, it, and, and, and that's, that's something you're free to practice, but it's not part of a collective community. It's privatised, in a sense, and, and, and shifted away from this, um, the domain of 
uh, the university itself. And UCL was inspired by the um, very radical ideas of a philosopher called, called Jeremy Bentham, who is also credited with um, creating a philosoph philosophical uh, ethical view called utilitarianism. So if you've heard of Jeremy Bentham, it's often in relation to utilitarianism, which was a new way of thinking about ethics and morality. But that's, you know, <laughs> for another lecture. It took a long time to found UCL. I mean, if you think about it, it's very difficult to create a university. If you think about what a complex institution it is, um, and even today, when, there are, when it's something that, you know, there are many universities around, but it's not something that any group, any organisation can just do. You can't just found a university. It's very difficult. And so it was founded in 1826, and it was called the London University. But it wasn't officially recognised as a university by a royal charter, by, by, um, by parliament, until 10 years later in 1836. And because it was so controversial, this, this new secular vision, it had a lot of opposition and it was difficult for the founders of UCL to create and establish this university. So yes, that's just um, from the website of UCL here, where we can see that UCL is drawing on its, its disruptive um, heritage and making it sound very sort of fashionable um, and, uh, and sort of exciting and that's how UCL is presenting itself today. So many more establishment figures, Anglicans, were not happy by the foundation of UCL and so this group of people, among them several bishops and aristocrats, um, people in the government, decided that the people of London needed a proper Anglican traditional alternative to UCL. So UCL was set up as an alternative to Oxford and Cambridge, but then King's was founded as um, a more, more establishment and really a more conservative university that would cater for the same demographic that UCL had identified. So it would cater for um, middle-class people as well as upper-class people. And it was also, in the end, open to students from any religious background, but I'll say a little bit more about that. Um, so the college was proposed in 1828, two years after UCL was founded, and it, it got its Royal Charter much quicker, because yeah, it was a more establishment, much less controversial institution. It gained its Royal Charter in the following year. So you know, King's could claim to be the first university in London because it officially became a university in 1829 before UCL, but UCL was founded first. So in preparation for this lecture, I, I read the Royal Charter of 1829 just to see what it said. And it's quite a few pages long. And what I learned was it's, it's a really boring document. <laughs> I thought, oh, I wonder what the charter says. And yeah. so, but actually, it's a boring document, but that in itself is very interesting. Most of this charter is about bureaucracy, management, and funding. How are we going to, how is this university going to work? You know, who's going to be in charge? Who's going to make the decisions? You know, how, how are we going to figure out a group of people who are going to, you know, be trusted with the running of this university? And where's the money going to come from? And, and you know, how, and how are the donors, how are the people who give money going to be recognised? What kind of power are they going to have in this institution? And that's interesting because nowadays academics often complain a lot about the increase of bureaucracy and, and it's all about funding and it's all about management and in a sense perhaps it was always like this because it's really difficult to establish and to run a university and perhaps that's something that we take for granted when we sort of moan about 
you know, senior management or administrators telling, you know, telling academics and students what to do. And, but no, it was always like this. Anyway, I read through this boring royal charter, but what I did find within it were a few things about the values of kings. What, does, what were the aspirations that this new university was going to embody? And this is what it says. So it would be a college for the general education of youth um, in which the various branches of literature and science will be taught. So that's, the, that's those new academic disciplines I was talking about, literature and science, um, not yet taught in Oxford or Cambridge. And also, though, and this is where we see the difference from UCL, the doctrines and duties of Christianity as inculcated by the United Church of England and Ireland, the Anglican Church. It continues, we, we are desirous of maintaining indissolubly, indissolubly, so permanently, um, the sense of the permanence of the building and the institution, the connection between sound religion and useful learning. So at UCL, the secular vision was to divide learning from religion. Um, here, it's to connect the two together. And again, highly approve the design of instituting a college in which instruction in the doctrines and duties of Christianity shall be forever combined with other branches of useful education. So again, there's that sense of an aspiration for the future forever. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a strong word. And this idea of instruction, religious instruction. So people were going to come to kings and they were going to be instructed in the doctrines and the duties, the moral teachings, as well as the more metaphysical teachings of Christianity. And then this was also an interesting insight. You know, if you ask, how do you start a university? How do you make it happen? You, you get together a load of really important people um, and make them all support it. So that, you know, the Lord High Chancellor, the Archbishop of York, who's the second in command in the Church of England, the Bishop of London, the Chief Justice of the Church of England, the Speaker of the House of Commons, etc., etc., the Lord Mayor of London, Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, you know, all these people shall be by virtue of their offices. So whoever occupies these roles, these will be perpetual governors of the college. And again, this, this, this word perpetual gives that sense of longevity. So all these dignitaries, very, very much establishment figures, and we can contrast that with the UCL model of the disruptive anti-establishment thinkers. All these establishment people are going to be gathered together and govern the college. No person who is not a member of the Church of England and Ireland shall be able to act as a governor or to be eligible as a member of the council or to fill any office in the college. So that includes being a teacher, except the professorship, professorships of Oriental Literature and Modern Languages. So a couple of professorships, I assume for practical reasons. The holders of these chairs were exempt from this general requirement that anyone who worked at King's had to be a member of the Church of England. So at face value, it's not a very inclusive document. Uh, you learned a lot about inclusion and diversity last term. And so it's really interesting to think about the foundation of King's through the lens of some of those issues. So King's was a conservative institution in its foundation. But how conservative was it? Well, there was a big row about the foundation of King's uh, when it was set up um, between the Duke of Wellington, who was the prime minister, and another sort of important person called the Earl of Winchelsea. And the Earl of Winchelsea wanted kings to be like Oxford and Cambridge and subject to these test acts. And test acts were these tests that determined that only Anglicans were eligible to be students at 
um, Oxford and Cambridge, that's what the test acts were. You could only enter those universities if you were, as a student, if you were a member of the Church of England. Um, the Duke of Wellington, um, at the same time as he was involved with founding kings, he's the Prime Minister, he was also involved in Catholic emancipation, which, which meant giving more rights to non-Anglicans and particularly Catholics. And so he was really criticised, because on the one hand, he was supporting this conservative establishment Anglican University. On the other hand, he was um, supporting giving more rights to Catholics. So from the most conservative quarters, he was criticised because he wanted kings to be open to everybody, um, not just members of the Church of England. So even though the governors and the staff would have to be Anglicans, the students could, could come from any background at all. And so to settle this disagreement, they, they fought this ridiculous duel <laughs> on Battersea Fields, um, which seems a really weird way to you know, settle a political dispute, but perhaps no less weird than what we see happening at the moment when politicians disagree with each other. Um, I guess it's the 19th century sort of Twitter battle, um, but they actually went to Battersea Fields and had this duel with their pistols. Um, in the end, the Duke of Wellington sort of won the day, and so all students were admitted to King's. Anyone could come and study at King's, but they all had to follow this Christian curriculum. They would all be instructed in the doctrines and duties of Christianity, and they had to attend services in the college chapel. So to be a student at King's, you had to come to chapel. Imagine, imagine what that would be like. Um, so it's a kind of compromise. It's a classic sort of fudge in a way, a classic sort of Anglican fudge. Um, but this was what Kings saw itself as representing when it was set up. And obviously very relevant to us, the AKC was part of this early history of Kings. Before Kings began to award degrees, it was awarding the AKC, the Associate of King's College, and that was first awarded in 1835, and it's been taught continuously at King's ever since, and here we are today. And so, actually, when we think about how King's has changed over time, we, we, could, we could do worse than to look at the AKC and think about how the AKC has changed over time. You know, it was once one of the main ways in which King's made sure its students were indoctrinated or instructed um, in Christian teachings. Now, of course, um, the AKC is no longer confessional in this way at all. Just to take the example of the series we had last term, it's now thinking in very sort of focused ways about diversity and difference and equality. Um, and I suppose more importantly than the subject matter that, that, that uh, the AKC takes, it's an academic um, program. So it's a way in which all those new academic disciplines that, that began to emerge in the 19th century and that have continued to grow and change through the 20th and recent centuries, it's a way in which big questions, uh, not just about religion, but also philosophy and ethics, can be shared uh, within the institution. The, the chapel is, 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 not, is not a space um, now in which the sort of ethos of kings is, is, is shared in very broad ways. Um, but the AKC is. It continues to be this place that sort of fosters and gives space to um, thinking about these questions. And that's quite different, again, from, from the UCL model, where questions about religion are kind of um, just put to one side, basically. They're not taught, um, or they're not taught as part of the official curriculum anyway. Um, whereas if a building is about giving space and also giving time to certain activities, then King's and within it, the AKC, gives space and time to thinking um, in sort of academic ways about 
religious questions, and I'll, I'll return to that um, towards the end. Throughout the 19th century, all the principles of kings were Anglican clergymen. That changed at the, in the early um, 20th century. But it's interesting, and in a way, it's so obvious that we perhaps don't even notice it, but kings has always had a male principle throughout its history. Um, and women, in general, only sort of gradually became, um, at higher education, university education, only gradually became opened up to women during the 19th century. It was only later in the 19th century that women could, could come to study at, at university. At UCL, um, women were admitted in 1878. Um, but only to certain subjects. So women could study the humanities, but they couldn't study medicine or engineering at UCL, for example, until much later. Um, so that was quite quickly followed by King's with this new ladies' department that opened in 1885. Um, we can compare this to um, women being able to uh, matriculate, sorry, graduate at Oxford in 1920 and at Cambridge in 1948. So actually King's and UCL were both um, two of the first universities to open up to women. Only during the First World War um, were women admitted to the medical schools at both King's and UCL for the first time. So it's been a really, it's been a slow and long process of opening higher education up to, to women. So let's just glance at how King's understands itself today. Um, having a look at the King's website and, and thinking about the kinds of values that it now espouses, uh, we find these phrases, service to society, a civic university in the heart of London, an international community that serves the world. And, you know, you can be a bit cynical about these things. It's a sort of branding exercise, and, um, you know, maybe these phrases are a bit vacuous, but they're also really interesting. They, they also express an aspiration. They're expressions of what do we collectively value, what do we think is important, and what, what do we want kings to be, what kind of a place do we want kings to be. And what's interesting is when you look at UCL, actually very similar phrases are coming up. So despite the very, dis very different um, heritages of the two institutions, now UCL and kings are describing themselves in, in really similar ways. UCL is diverse global community um, at the heart of the one of the world's most dynamic cities. And in a sense, those, those descriptions are pretty much interchangeable. This, this word global is one that comes up a lot in, um, in university branding in, in this country nowadays. And another important and more recent development to note is a, a new emphasis on diversity and inclusion. So these are the latest figures from King's that show a gender pay gap of 18% currently and an ethnicity pay gap of 13%. So this top quartile is the green is men and, and um, orange is women. So this is, these are the, people, the group of people at King's, uh, employees at King's who are paid the most. Um, and you can see that there are a lot more men than women in that group. And then at the bottom quartile, um, that, that proportion is, is reversed so that there's um, a lot more women than men being paid at the lower um, end of, of, of that scale. Um, and there's obviously a lot of scope for critique and, and, and sort of worry and, you know, th things need to change um, when we look at these figures. But there's also, really importantly, an aspiration embedded in the fact that these figures are being published at all. Um, the fact that King's is willing to publicise and to very publicly say, you know, this is the current situation. Um, we recognise that it's not... Uh, not, not acceptable and we want to change it. Um, the very concept of a gender pay gap is, is, is one that expresses an aspiration for equality. 
And so there's a real spirit of self-scrutiny and, and, and transparency that we can see. And this is, this is something that King's, of course, shares with most other institutions. But it's interesting to see how these values are changing. Um, and the very publication of these statistics expresses uh, the value of, of equality in a really powerful way. And King's isn't really giving itself much choice about, <laughs> about doing something about it when it publishes these kinds of figures um, that are just available on the website. So just to conclude, we looked at the college charter, but I also um, had a look at the college prayer, um, which was, again, an, an original document that, that, that comes from the foundation of King's. Um, and it talks about uh, sending down a blessing upon this college. It's a prayer that's still said in, in, in the college chapel, um, I think, almost, almost every day of the week. Um, so it's an, it asks for God's blessing on kings and prosper the designs of its founders and benefactors. More particularly, we pray that the seeds of learning, virtue and religion here sown may bring forth fruit abundantly to your glory and the benefit of our fellow creatures. Um, and I think I, I would like to sort of take this opportunity to think about the designs of the founders and benefactors of kings and to really appreciate what they did. It's easy to criticise. Yeah, it's easy to look back and think, oh, you know, there were a bunch of sort of important men sitting around together and, you know, they came up with this conservative vision for a university. It's not very inclusive. And there's all sorts of kind of clever and sophisticated critiques we can make about these people. But these were people who had a vision and who gave money to create this place um, where people are given space and given time to cultivate the seeds of learning and virtue and religion. Those founders of Kings have made possible everything that happens today. And so I think we, we can really appreciate their boldness and their determination to make this very difficult thing happen in creating a university. And it was really the beginning of what we now call widening participation, that ideal that education should be accessible to all people regardless of their background, their religious affiliation. Everyone would be welcome to come to King's. And that's something that's developed and shifted over the years, but that's still part of the original ethos of King's, going in that direction of widening participation and, of course, widening an awful lot over the centuries. And I think a really important question to think about is what do we mean by learning virtue and religion? There's a sense, I think, in which the founders of Kings had a pretty secure and clear idea of what these things meant. What's learning? What's virtue? Well, virtue is the duties of Christianity. Religion is, is the Anglican faith. There was a real kind of sureness about what these words mean. Now, I think, um, we, can, we can ask the question, you know, what is learning? Um, what is it important to learn? Um, what kind of knowledge is going to be uh, most important to us as we, we move through kings? What do we need to learn in our lives as human beings? And what is virtue? What, is the most important, what are the most important qualities that human beings need to live in the world today? And we can think about the virtue that's, uh, the seeds of virtue that are flowering in um, the campaign for justice for cleaners, for example. Um, that might not be something that would be envisaged by um, the founders and benefactors of kings in the 19th century, but that could certainly be a flowering of those seeds that were planted then. And religion also is a question. And perhaps the conservative heritage of kings, which places religion at the heart of the mission of the college, actually, in an ironic way, 
better equips it to grapple with contemporary questions about religious conflict, religious identity and religious difference, the kinds of questions that we're facing in London um, and the kind of questions that we're facing in the world. Perhaps um, that willingness to put religion at the heart of kings actually equips it really well to think about these very modern issues. Um, and again, if we compare it with UCL, uh, which doesn't have an AKC and which doesn't have a, a theology department, it doesn't have the academic expertise to think about this really crucial category of religion. And so for myself, as an academic in the theology and religious studies department, you know, for me, I'm still thinking about what religion is as a philosopher. I'm, you know, I, I don't really know what that word means. Um, like many of my colleagues in the department, it's a contested question. It's kind of an open question. You know, what is religion? It's such a complex phenomenon. Is it something... Um, that's sort of within ourselves? Is it an empirical social reality? Is it some kind of construct, cultural construct? You know, what is it and how do we think about it? Um, and King's is a place that's continuing to really make that question at the heart of the institution. So, you know, King's has this chapel that is at the heart of the building and that itself poses a question. What should happen there? This is a sacred space and so what, is, what do we hold to be sacred? Um, how should we use this space? And the very fact that that's there and it's part of the building keeps those questions alive, um, just, as it, just as they're questions that are kept alive in an academic sense by having a, a theology department and, and having the AKC as well, of course. I said at, at the beginning of the lecture that a building is something that is a, is a place that gives both space and time for the things that are important to us. King's is a building that gives us space and gives us time for learning, for thinking, writing, writing books, um, talking to one another, debating, you know, really big questions as well as very specific questions in our, our academic disciplines. Um, questions about who we are and what are we doing here? What are we doing here in this building? So thinking about this lecture and sort of researching more about the history of Kings actually gave me a greater sense of appreciation um, partly on an institutional level, um, how amazing it is that this university exists at all. You know, it, might, it, might, it, it could easily not have done. Um, but on a personal level, the whole vision of widening participation and, and opening up higher education um, to more people is something that's really affected me. I mean, you know, 200 years ago or 100 years ago as a woman, I wouldn't have been able to go to university. Um, I don't come from a rich family. I'm the first person in my family to go to university. Um, and so the opportunity to be given the resources and the time and the space um, to live an intellectual life and to have, to have colleagues who, um, you know, like-minded people who are wanting to kind of share this um, intellectual adventure is just a huge privilege. And so the kinds of critiques that we can make of you know, conservative founders who are, who are conservative and, and, and not inclusive often come from a place of, of a sort of complacency in taking something for granted. You know, perhaps it's only because we take the very existence of this university for granted that we have the security to make these kinds of critiques. And I'm not saying that the critiques shouldn't be made. They should. But I'd also like to sort of unsettle that complacency and that taking for granted. Um, because even though this is a very big building... It takes up a lot of space. It's got these deep uh, foundations and these thick walls. It's still a fragile place. A universities may not exist in 100 years' time. Um, we don't know what the future holds. Um, and so 
I think, yeah, appreciating the values and uh, the opportunities that this place gives us is, um, is, a, place to, is a place to end on. <laughs> um, and I think also we're going to actually see that in a very concrete way as we, we listen to the lectures from other colleagues at King's and, and get a window into their research and their expertise um, and get a sense of the different kinds of thinking about these big questions that are still happening and still flourishing at King's today. So thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>